Jade Kake is a Māori architect and director and founder of Matakohi Architecture and Urbanism. She she specialises in designing communities and housing based on traditional on a traditional model of living known as Papakaunga. In recent times, she's also added fiction and non-fiction writing to her repertoire. She has already this year co-authored a biography, Rewi Atehaere Kiateri, about the architect Rewi Thompson, looking at his profound impact on design, specifically on Māori design. This has also hit the bookstores this month. We had a recent review of it. And now, Jade's first novel, Checkerboard Hill, has just been released. It centres around Ria a young wahine navigating her culture while living in Australia. Jade Kake is in our Tamaki Makaurau Auckland studio. Tēnā koe, Jade. Welcome. Thanks for coming in. Tēnā koe, Catherine. Thanks for having me this morning. It's such a pleasure to be here. Congratulations on these recent publications, both achievements. How busy has life been and how do you manage it? Look, I think it's created a, a really unrealistic expectation, which is that I can put a book out every month. Um, <laughs> collectively, it's a number of years' work, so that every book was around four years of work and the novel was around two. But just by coincidence of timing, I just seem insanely productive. But I'm, I'm, I promise you I'm not. So the, the memoir won't be out next month, maybe a little bit later. <laughs> when did writing come into your life, either just as part of who you are or as a serious endeavour? What's your history with it? Uh, this is a really nice question because now I get to talk about my um, childhood literary career, which no one's ever asked me about, so wonderful. Uh, so uh, as uh, probably people might know, I grew up in Australia and, and when I was at school, um, there was a few things that I was involved in. Uh, so one which was really special was that there was a, a competition to be in, a part of an anthology of young writers and I was selected for the book and I was one of, oh, I actually forget how many, maybe 10 or 12, and I was the youngest at the time at age 11. And we had our book launch at the Byron Bay Writers' Festival uh, when I was, I think, 12. And John Marsden, the the well-known Australian you know, young adult fiction, children's author, um, he launched our book. And so that was kind of where it began for me with some really encouraging teachers. And then something else happened too, which was that I entered a local poetry prize and one third places, I think maybe the only child that entered. And so I, I went off with a bit of a bang. But um, I think by the time I got to university, of course, I wasn't doing creative writing or anything like that. And I, without have teachers around me to kind of guide me on where to submit things and, and how to move forward, I really didn't know how you would kind of continue with that kind of thing. Um, well, so then, uh, sorry, you I go. was going to say, it's good to see there's a back catalogue. I hope Huey is paying attention. They can, they can publish another one. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I'll just continue really, really quickly. And so, um, you know, I had no idea. And then I'm in my early 20s and I'm writing lots, but, you know, writing reviews for plays and writing essays and then, you know, just keeping them on my hard drive. I had absolutely no idea how you'd get anything published. Um, and I think just uh, maybe a happy accident of, of the fact that I was, you know, engaged in professional work and was doing Māori housing advocacy work at the time. And people started asking me to write about Papa Kainga, whether it's sort of a case study or an article here or there. And I guess um, those that were kind of, you know, amplifying my voice and letting me be published, saw some merit in what I was putting out. And so from there, it kind of had a small track record. So it was easier to kind of get things published and to pitch things. And by then I had a bit of a clue about who might publish what I was interested in writing. Um, And then that was probably about six years ago, I started kind of seriously trying to put writing out and getting it published. And mostly nonfiction, mostly around my area of professional expertise. And then from there, um, I decided to give fiction a go after not really trying to do anything like that for you know a good decade. 
And um, two key things. Uh, one is that I applied for the Michael King Writers Centre uh, to do a residency there. That's uh, over on the shore. Um, and they granted me this Emerging Writers Residency, which was really validating because I hadn't done any fiction. I'd just done nonfiction. Um, and then second to that, I entered the Papatupu, which is the Māori Literature Trust program that Huia publishers run uh, every two years. And that would have been in 2019. 2020, I think it's that, that kicked off. Um, and that was a really significant program because you just need to have a manuscript that's maybe partway through or most of the way through. And then they will team you up with a mentor. They have a series of workshops as a cohort of six, take you to some festivals and also um, give you a stipend. And then at the end of the program, you have to submit a manuscript. It's in your contract. So that's a real motivator to actually finish something. Um, and that's how the manuscript for Checkerboard Hill came about. What a brilliant uh, support and set up for a writer and thank goodness and um, I mean Huey has played such an enormous role uh, in, in promoting a great books and great giving uh, and second giving uh, young writers and particularly um, young tangata whenua um, a pathway because as you say navigating publication and, and even the whole kind of almost cynical um, you know what's in what's out um, reality of the publishing world. How wonderful to hear a writer nurtured this way. Let's start with the novel then, with Checkerboard Hill. And when did the story itself begin forming in you? Yeah, and I think maybe it was 2018 or around about that time. Um, and so the film Wado came out, which some of the listeners may be familiar with, and it's sort of a compendium of eight short films that are thematically linked. And I went with a few friends and watched that at the cinema. And then afterwards, we all went to dinner and we were talking about it. And, and some of the stories I absolutely loved. And some I felt, and maybe this is unfair criticism, but I felt that some of the stories were maybe, you know, sometimes Māori storytelling can be a little bit reductive where we're kind of saying, oh, look, our culture, it's so mystical and amazing. And, you know, or we're saying, oh, look, colonization has really done a number on us. And, you know, they've got all these social dysfunction as a result. And that's not to criticize any of those writers or filmmakers. I thought it was wonderful. But because I felt that way, it got me thinking, well, you know, there's no use throwing stones if you're not going to contribute something positive. So if I felt like I had that criticism, then what am I going to contribute that's different? And, and what story might I have to tell that's different? And then that got me thinking about um, my formative experiences growing up in Australia and, and just thinking about, you know, relationship to being Māori as well as relationship to that place and the Indigenous people of that place. And so that sparked off a whole bunch of ideas. And I kind of had a look. I was like, has anyone written about this? And as far as I could tell, nobody really had, although some people have written kind of academic research and um, written nonfiction kind of pieces. But I hadn't seen any fiction kind of specifically looking at these themes and these experiences. And I thought, well... They always say right from what you know, so that might be a good place to start. So tell us a little of the story before we look at some of the themes, perhaps. But it's centred on a young wahine, Ria, mm. who's navigating her culture whilst living in Australia. Um, and there's a parallel, a starting point parallel, right? As someone who grew up in New South Wales, I think. Mm. But tell me a little bit more about uh, Ria and her whānau in New Zealand and, and in Australia. And let's just give people an idea of where this novel goes. Jade? Yeah, so the story starts with this main character, Ria, and she's living in, you know, or presumably Auckland, but, you know, in an urban area in New Zealand. And, you know, she's got this fabulous life. She's got this wonderful supportive partner, you know, beautiful, you know, young family and wonderful, fabulous, you know, painting career. But you can see this kind of unease and tension and dissatisfaction bubbling under the surface. 
and you kind of think, well, what what's this about? You know, she's doesn't doesn't she like her wonderful life? You know, um, so it, you kind of think there's something going on for this character, and then she gets this kind of phone call, and next thing you know, she's on a plane heading to Australia. And she reconnects again with her whānau after having been um, absent for a long time and clearly kind of cut off her family that live in Australia, her close family. Um, and, and, you know, and, and as you go through, the kind of tensions kind of become obvious and the, the relationships kind of get fleshed out a bit more. But there's this whole sense of unease underneath the surface and it takes quite a while to kind of work out what's what's going on for her and, and why is she behaving this way and you know, and I, I think I think it's kind of a an interesting arc. It is focused just on this one character the whole time. It's not a multiple kind of point of view. So you are kind of close close in with the with her and and trying to make sense of her experiences. Some of the themes, well, you you pick out some of the main themes that that you that you explored, um, and this idea of one's Maori tanga. Uh, when one is living in Australia, there's also a really interesting theme on this on, on the concept of when you are an Indigenous person living in another Indigenous people's land. So there's a lot to explore. Do you want to pick on one or two of the the things that you really wanted to work through here, as well as telling a you know a, a really absorbing story? Yeah. Um. So I guess without hoping not to sound overly academic, but I was really interested in this idea of indigeneity in the diaspora. And so, you know, although Australia is probably our most obvious large diaspora community, there are other diaspora communities, whether it's in, you know, the United Kingdom or the United States or other parts of the world, um, as well as the significant diaspora communities we have, say, from various um, Pacific islands that are based here in Aotearoa. So I, I kind of think that that theme alone is such a richness and, and a relatability to many communities. And a few sort of sub-themes to that is just thinking about, as, as you mentioned, if you're living in someone else's land, then you might have maybe an, an increased sensitivity to um, what it means to be in that space and what it means for the indigenous people of, of or the colonized people in that setting. And maybe there's an added responsibility to be kind of aware of, of your actions in, in, in that area. Um, and then also, I guess, thinking about your identity, because we're never just one thing and we are, you know, such a product of our environment. And so if you're kind of transplanted somewhere else, you might have a, you know, varying understandings in relationship to your own, you know, original culture. Um, but that will also be shaped through the lens of the place that you've grown up, the people you've grown up around, even just the natural environment, which is very different um, in parts of Australia to New Zealand. And I think there's a, there's a real richness there. And, and then there's also the intergenerational knowledge transfer and what it means for our cultural traditions. Uh, and one I really picked out was around tangihanga because, um, you know, we've got such a large population in Australia and some will pay the considerable expense to um, return the tupapaku back to the hokainga. You know, that's a lot of money. Others will, will go for cremation. Others will get buried there. And, and the way that tangihanga is enacted might be different if you don't have your reo or if you don't have a strong knowledge of tikanga what does that look like? Another example is the idea of um, marae in Australia. Um, should you know what is the situation? Is there a, a marae? It's, it's interesting. I think we had one in London for many years, didn't we? Um, but but are there marae in, in in Australia, or is it a hot topic of debate? 
yeah, I think there might be uh, maybe four international marae. There's definitely one in the United States. There's definitely one in London. There might be one in Germany. But a lot of those have quite a different history in that those houses were kind of dismantled and taken to those places. Um, and there's also a marae in Hawaii, but uh, that's a whareinui at the po- uh, Polynesian Cultural Centre. Um, and that was specifically built by, you know, cut, you know, Māori carvers for the purpose of, of that, um, you know, I don't know what you call it, but it's like a special kind of park exhibition kind of cultural centre. Anyway, but moving on from those, the proposition that's been on the table for a while in Sydney is quite different. So um, I'm not knowledgeable on this, so um, forgive me if I kind of get any of the details wrong. But to my limited understanding, there was some land that was kind of gifted and set aside for this purpose quite a long time ago. And now there's a local group that are, are seeking to kind of put put, put up a marae in Sydney. Um, there are some tensions where um, perhaps not all of the local Indigenous people are on board with this proposal. Um, but I think it's a complex issue. Uh, whether we should or not, I mean, my perspective is that it's not dissimilar to erecting urban marae if you're not hokainga. It just, I mean, it's over the sea, yes, but it's not too different to erecting, say, an urban marae in Auckland. And I think the same tensions apply. And so I think if you've got the support of whoever the mana whenua are, whether they're Māori here in Aotearoa or Indigenous people elsewhere, then I think that that's, that can be appropriate. Or you might want to reconsider the tikanga that applies. And I think of uh, institutional marae or institutional whare, for instance, and I've been in some really interesting debates with, or not, I wasn't debating, I was just listening to them. <laughs> Komatsu are debating, you know, what kind of tikanga should apply in those spaces if we can't kind of, you know, uphold it all of the time. And often they kind of, you know, take a point that it doesn't need to have the same same restrictions um, as hokainga marae would. And so, again, you can kind of think of it in a different way and there might be certain things that you don't do there and certain things that you do. So, I mean, I think it's a nuanced conversation, but I can see that real hunger from those who are growing up in Australia, living in Australia for their real, for their culture. And, you know, families are there. Families are settled. It's quite hard to shift yourself back when if you've got multiple generations living there and you're wanting to be close to mokopuna and things like that. But... Yeah, maybe not a marae in a hokaiga sense, but I, I think there is a place for these these cultural centres and these places for our people to gather and learn. Jade Kake, my guest, in the first instance on her novel Checkerboard Hill, but much else to discuss as well. You're listening to Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan on RNZ National. Then this is idea of identity, uh, and this will be different for, for many people. Your experience will be different from someone else's, but tell me about Ria's experience. She, she tends to keep her Australian and her Māori identities uh, separate, uh, and, and then beyond keeping them separate for some kind of practical purpose, there is a sense of separation in her, right? Um, and is that um, does that need to be confronted when one, say, returns to the Marae for the first time in a, in a long time? Yeah, I, I think others might experience that sense of disconnect and pieces of them kind of broken apart. And what I have seen with others, and I will speak to Ria in a minute, but what I've seen with others sometimes is if there's a, a fractured relationship in the family and maybe it's a parent or a sibling or you know, a grandparent or something, that might cut off that whole world, that whole branch of the family, that whole part of themselves from somebody. And until you kind of are in a position to 
heal that trauma. And, and I mean, maybe that's not realistic for everyone and maybe they'll just live with that, that trauma and try not to pass it on to the next generation. But I think in Ria's case, she's kind of confronting some specific trauma and, you know, often our trauma response is just to cut things off as opposed to kind of deal with them. And then sometimes things happen in life. And in this case, it's a, a death that kind of brings her back of a family member. Then she's forced to confront it and all the things that she'd been kind of keeping separate and, and compartmentalizing it and trying not to deal with. Compartmentalising to herself, let alone mm. anyone else. Well, let's talk about Jade and what brought Jade back uh, to Whangarei. Um, what was the what was the the push or the pull for you? Yeah, a few factors. Um, so yeah, I was born and raised in Australia, and my grandfather um, Haki was someone I was very close to growing up. Um, he sadly passed away when I was twenty, and same year, his older sister Ruiha, who um, was the matriarch of our family, she also passed away, and I was also very close to her. And so for me, there those two passing away in the same year was kind of the push that. I needed to um, return home. And I, I think I really thank them in particular for um, creating that strong sense of connection that I might not have had if I didn't have aunties and uncles and my grandfather saying, you belong here. Um, it's harder to make that connection if nobody's been reinforcing it for you when it feels a little tenuous. Uh, and so another factor, I guess, was um, I, I studied architecture uh, in Brisbane. I did my undergrad straight out of high school. And I was really interested in finding ways to return. And um, it was my auntie Eliza when I was visiting maybe the summer of my second year of uni. I was over in Auckland visiting her. And she said, oh, our Fanongaro Hoskins, he's, a, he's an architect. He's doing the things you want to do. You should connect with him. I'll connect you. And so she did. And I started emailing him from Australia. And he was like, look, you just have to be here. You just got to come home. Um, and it took me a couple of years, but I managed to take up that challenge so it was 2011 that I kind of moved back um, and started that process of strengthening those connections because I I felt those connections were always there with my immediate family but I didn't have strong connections in the hapu I didn't you know I didn't kind of know a lot of stuff about the broader Māori world outside of my kind of little whānau experience so there was a lot of kind of you know expanding and looking outwards and and learning and, and listening. You met Rebe Thompson, of whom you've co-written a biography. I think you met him while a student, is that correct? Uh, yes, I was doing my master's and I was doing a bit of work with uh, Karen Wilson, who's a really renowned craftsman and designer and um, and also one of my lecturers at, at uni in my master's. And um, he happened to be doing some work with Rewi and I had met him then. I had also heard about him while I was at the University of Queensland. So one of my classmates, um, Will Harvey-Jones, um, he went on a trip. I don't know if it was a summer summer kind of program or if it was just a short trip, but he, we did an elective studio or something. And they came. They brought a group to Auckland. They, you know, went to to Nohokotahi Tangamirai. They went to Auckland Uni. They met with Rewi. And he was like, oh, you've got to meet this Māori architect. He's amazing. Like, and I guess because I was still finding finding my feet because, I don't know, like I was still a teenager. So it's really nerve-wracking to try to just contact random people, which I wouldn't have any problem with now. So, but at 18, 19, I was less comfortable. So it took me – I didn't end up reaching out to him. And I just kind of happened to meet him. But I was aware of his work and been following his work and really wanted to wanted to know more about him. So it's four years of work, you said. It could have been more looking by the size and complexity of it with respect to the um, illustrations in particular, including a lot of hand, um, uh, hand-drafted hand um, designs. Uh, it's 455 pages and, and images. It's a heck of a lot of work. And for those who aren't familiar with uh, Ribi, Ribi Thompson, what's, 
was what was his impact in architecture? What was so groundbreaking or significant about his work that you could speak to? Yeah, I think, you know, and I don't know that he would have thought about it this way, but reflecting on kind of his legacy, I think he was a really pivotal person at a time where architecture was almost entirely Pakeha dominated, which is still true, but there are more of us. And he was kind of this lone practitioner who was, or there was a few others, but, you know, one of the few. And he was working before the Māori Renaissance, lived through and practiced through the Māori Renaissance and came out the other side of it and was finally really in a position where he could genuinely and authentically practice as Māori. And just by being himself and having the values that he had, uh, he really kind of was one of those pivotal figures that changed what New Zealand architecture can be. Um, I know we'd kind of had this uh, like cultural kind of issue trying to figure out who we are and everyone kind of talks about like the elegant shed and this idea of the batch and these are our cultural touch points and you know Māori architecture really wasn't considered a valid form and I think you know with the various changes happening in society and Rewi practicing at that time and being who he was he was able to kind of you know demonstrate a different way of thinking about architecture that was genuinely of this place and genuinely of the people of this place. How did you and your co-author Jeremy Hansen bring this together? We've been talking about writing a novel. It's such a different beast to produce a biography. And as we said, also, you have weaved so much in and out of illustrations and extraordinary hand-drawn designs. They're works of art in their own right. But how did you tackle it, I guess, as a writing project, but also as... Um, an architectural tome. Mm. I think it's fair to say we didn't quite know what we're getting ourselves into. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I guess how it started was maybe around mid-2019. So Jeremy and I are friends, and Jeremy's written a few other books or co-authored a few other architecture books and been a a journalist in the area of architecture for a long time. Um, And we had this thought that, well, look, you know, it's been a few years since the day we has passed and um, his impact is really significant. But outside of architecture circles, people didn't really know who he was or weren't aware of his, his work. And so we thought, well, somebody should do something and perhaps it could be us. And really, we got no further than there before we uh, decided that we really must reach out to Lucy, Derry's daughter, and just say, hey, we're thinking of doing this. What do you think? If, if, if this has got merit, if you think this has got potential, if you're supportive, we'll keep investigating. If you don't, we'll just drop it. You know, we, we wouldn't want to do anything that you weren't supportive of. And thankfully, Lucy was supportive. And then along the way, pretty early on, we discovered that um, she had donated a majority of Dewey's drawings to the Auckland University Architecture Archive. And so that was really our starting point. So we might have been aware of certain projects, but the visual material really drove the research. And what a rich, visually rich archive um, there was. And we went through every single folder. It was just a treasure trove of um, un, uncatalogued, unsorted kind of... And they've, they have since made a lot of progress because we were amongst the few that were allowed to um, look at those and work through the archive for the first time. We just happened upon some incredible things. And I can't say that we had any particular systems. So it was just folders with all random projects and drawings and trying to puzzle it out. But that was kind of half the fun. And, mm-hmm. you know, now we can recognize a, a, a scribble and know which project it belongs to. But at the beginning, we're like, what on earth is this from? It's like a treasure trove. For you now as an architect, director and founder of Matakohi Architecture and Urbanism, um, how, can I, how can I ask such a broad question? Um, what, 
what's the kaupapa Māori? What's the tikanga Māori? What's the Māori tanga expressed through architecture? Could you give us an idea of uh, of the philosophy and the practice that you're bringing to your work, as are others? Yeah, so um, in, from my, in my view, kaupapa Māori architecture really speaks to working for the benefit of Māori communities and working collaboratively with them and also working to support and uplift Māori practitioners um, and also hapuranga tiratanga. And that's not always achievable, but what I mean by that is that really trying to empower communities in terms of uh, responding and creating their own solutions and growing their uri, their descendants, to be able to do that kind of work with and for them. This uh, it's an interesting time for architecture generally. The sort of the um, three bedroom standalone villa on a quarter acre is long gone, and a lot of people looking increasingly at communal living. A lot of people are looking at uh, different ways of designing homes for different life stages. Is this where um, uh, Kopapa Maori design actually brings a heck of a lot of lived experience? Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, something I've really found in my kind of long, long-held passion and interest in papakainga is that actually our um, our planning system and also our building code, they're all kind of, and our financing system, they're all quite. In, I shouldn't say it like this, but really, they're inherently they're inherently colonial. Yeah, I was going to say racist, I but I just toned myself down. <laughs> <laughs> but then I said it anyway. And so what you realize is that it's it's set up for a particular configuration and a particular family makeup. And I think, you know, it's really upon us now to kind of do the work to make those changes to our district plan provisions, make those changes to our building code, make those changes to our financing system so that the kind of housing and the kind of living environment that is fit for purpose for Māori communities and Māori whanau, and I suspect many other communities mm. that are based in Aotearoa, um, you know, that, that's, that's what needs to happen. And I, I, a lot of work has been done in that area, and I've been involved with a fair bit of that, but so much more still needs to be done. Yeah, the co, the so-called co-housing, I've heard some of the battles that even quite small numbers of people wanting to make modest changes um, uh, come up against. Uh, but equally another issue, uh, to, to mention the institutional um, issues, uh, I was just reading yesterday that, that actually there's quite high, proportionately quite high um, home ownership among Māori, which threw me a little bit, in many instances, on papakaianga land, and that, that again, the funding institutions and others um, uh, have a, a different view of, of that as an asset. And uh, I think I was reading it in the context of people having to you know, borrow money, even though they've got freehold homes, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's an, there's an impact within Māoridom, but there's also a tremendous wisdom and model for our housing design in our community and lifestyle design, full stop, Jade. Absolutely. And I, it's great that you mentioned co-housing. And, um, you know, something that you generally see with groups that are pursuing co-housing is that they're not exclusively, but often Pākehā, often educated, often have great professional skills and resources, sometimes got money to put into these developments. So really the odds are kind of stacked in the favour of these groups, but still it's so very hard to get off the ground and, and make it work. But what I like to think is that for these sort of tenacious skilled groups who are going to get in there trying to make change, 
that they'll be able to bust through some of these structural barriers and, and um, you know, the rest of us who might have a few more barriers ourselves might be able to kind of follow. So, I mean, it won't solve everything, but I am really excited by the co-housing movement and I hope that we're able to see some substantial change because of those people kind of leading that charge. Nyamihi Nui, and thanks again and congratulations again. Jade Kake, her novel is Checkerboard Hill, published by Huya, and the last month's effort uh, was the publication of Riwi Atahaere Kiatiri. Uh, the co-authored biography of Rewe Thompson. It was published by Massey University Press.